Hello and welcome to the Riff Raff podcast, which from this point on- onwards will only be hosted by me, Amy Baker, as Rosie has moved on to pastures new. Um, please keep listening. As you know, we set up the Riff Raff to champion the work of debut authors and to provide guidance, support and now services for those dreaming of one day being published themselves. Nigella, in How to Eat, says that she makes carbonara for her lovers, like in the movies, and takes it back to bed. I make mine for my best friend. When we're up late, when the men are away, when we're watching bad films at midnight and the shops are shut and we need something savoury and salty and good. Caroline says, men don't eat carbonara, which isn't true, but it's true enough that it makes us both laugh quietly in the kitchen, with the bright white light of the street lamp shining down on the parmesan and the garlic and the linguine on the laminate. I'm beating eggs and turning the garlic cloves over and over in the pan. Caroline is grating the parmesan, and I am pretending not to notice that more is going into her mouth than into the bowl. It's the kind of friendship one doesn't expect to find in the adult world. It's a school day's jealous, my best friend friendship. While I cook, she reads to me from Flowers in the Attic and My Sweet Audrina. We give each other beloved books for birthdays and annotate them. You are going to love this, or no, or you, with an arrow, and underlined passages. The books are almost always by women. Laurie Colwyn, Judy Bloom, the Ephrons, the Mitford sisters. We are always swapping books about sisters. She's a youngest sister, I am an eldest sister, and we sit sometimes and map that onto our lives. You want validation because you have always had it. I want attention because I never got it. You assume everyone is looking at you. I am desperate for people to look at me. We talk about our sisters. We talk always about our mothers. We always have. The first evening Caroline came to dinner. The tall man, whose friend she was, was late home from work. And Caroline and I sat for two hours, strangers, and ate a piece of Stilton as big as a novel, and laughed a lot, and talked about our bodies, and about our mothers. The pattern was set then, I think, for this peculiar intense friendship that is part motherhood, part wifehood, part sisterhood, and all framed in the shameless joy of eating. This is not terribly authentic. Nothing in this book is, you might have worked that out by now. Real carbonara has no cream, no garlic, and no wine. Only eggs, pancetta, pasta and parmesan. That's good too, of course, but it's hard to get right. It took me years before I could make it without scrambling the eggs. And truly, it's only practice that did it. Not a recipe, not a technique, just practice. I'm sorry. But not that sorry, because in the meantime, there's this. Equally delicious, yet far easier. Creamy pancetta cheese, eggs, linguine. Rounded off with a hit of white wine and garlic and nutmeg, hitting every single one of the same spots as real carbonara without having to wait to work out how to get it perfect. Because this is always perfect. Today's guest is Ella Risbridger. Ella is a writer and poet who's written for The Guardian, Stylist and Grazia, and has written columns for The Pool and The Eye. Ella is here to talk about her debut cookbook, Midnight Chicken, one of the most moving books I've ever encountered, which is really something you say about a cookbook, is it? Um, so welcome, Ella. Lovely to meet you. Thank you for coming on the Riff Raff podcast. Hi. Thank you so much. That's such a nice thing to say. I'm so pleased. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so congratulations on the publication. Can you can we start with you telling us a little bit about the book? So my friend Marika Prokosh, who's a Canadian poet, once wrote a poem called A Field Guide to Eating Your Feelings. And kind of in my heart, I think about Midnight Chicken as a bit like a field guide to eating your feelings. There's a lot of feel, a lot of kind of emotions in there and a lot of stories and a lot it's, it's essentially it's a cookbook about anxiety it's a cookbook about having an anxiety disorder and kind of getting past an anxiety disorder or learning to live with an anxiety disorder and 80 recipes I'm really proud of yeah delicious recipes I'm so excited to try the pikelets I've always wanted to know how to master a pikelet so I'm, I'm excited lots of people have had a lot of success with those pikelets so 
I believe they're fairly idiot proof. I don't know how good a cook you are, but I'm not that good a cook. But I believe they're pretty idiot proof. Okay. Lots of people who say they've never cooked before have sent me some really great pikelet pictures. Incidentally, that's one of the things that I've heard about the about the cookbook is that all the recipes work, which is a wonderful thing to hear. (laughs) Honestly, I think it was the eye in their little write up, like that rarest of things, a cookbook where all the recipes work. And honestly, I've never been more pleased about anything in my life. Like, (laughs) love writing please when people say I can write but to have written 80 recipes that people can use practically in their kitchens is feels a bit like I've pulled off a magic trick how much did you in, on that point on that note how much did you practice making them and practice what was going into them so that you got them as spot on as possible like... hundreds and hundreds <laughs> of times really basically the recipes in this book start off with a much longer list I think I had about 200 And these were the ones I wanted to come back to. These were the ones I wanted to cook again and again. And then there were some recipes, a few of them, that I knew I wanted to include that were really significant to me from my childhood or were really significant for other reasons. And those were the really tricky ones to get right. So there's a recipe. The first, second recipe in the book is for oat cakes. Staffordshire oat cakes, which are kind of like... If you're not from Staffordshire... I think I've had one before. I love them. They're my favourite thing in the world. They're like a kind of oaty pancake and you fill them with like cheese and bacon and roll them up or you can fill them with butter and marmite, which is my preferred option. Excellent option. It's the best. But in Staffordshire, you just buy them from the oatcake shop. And trying to make a recipe, an oatcake at home that was as good as an oatcake shop oatcake was really difficult. And I made that recipe hundreds of times. (laughs) And still, even... After publication, I was a bit like, have I got this right? Have I got this right? Please, please let me have got this right. And now different people are making them and their oat cakes are delicious. So mm. turns out I got it right. But honestly, hundreds and hundreds of times. So that so how long did that process take? Because, you know, if you've if you're you know, you're obviously such a you love cooking, you must have so many recipes. How do you possibly so you say that obviously it's the personal recipes or the ones that you came back to again and again, but how that how long did that process take of honing down to how many you actually included? It's hard to say how long it would have taken otherwise. Obviously, I was kind of... This book took me five years overall, and I was a full-time carer for a part of it, and I was a full-time student for a lot of it, and also I was working for a lot of it as well. So it's quite hard to know how much time it would have taken if I was able to kind of do it as a full-time job. Mm. But, like, you've got to cook every day anyway. You might as well try and hone something down. I got quite sick of some of the recipes. There's recipes in there that I'm, I'm giving a good year before I have to make again. <laughs> The lasagna, there's a charred leek lasagna, which I love, but also I need probably another year before I can eat it again, because I made it so much, <laughs> just trying to get the balance right of flavours. What do you think's your, the favourite recipe that you have in there? What do you, if, if, if someone was going to open it and just cook one recipe? Midnight chicken is the one I make most. I make midnight chicken, the title recipe, once a week. Okay. It's just really useful, it's a really useful Way and I suppose if you're trying to eat less meat as well, roasting a chicken, you know, you can get into all the, get from a good place, la la la, pay more for it. But roasting a chicken is quite a good way because then you've got the bones and you can use different bits of it, you can make a little pie. It's less about economy and more about the kind of environmental thing of Mm. eating meat, which I think we're all kind of getting into. Although it is, I guess it's more economical. It's hard to say economical because if you're spending more on the chicken in the first place. But just in terms of stretching it out, you can make some soup stretch- and a pie exactly. and sandwiches. You can make stock and then you can make risotto. Extreme option. <laughs> so, Midnight Chicken, probably. Okay. It's a title recipe for a reason. What else is It's really a great good? title. 
really Thank like you. it. Yeah. So the thing that struck me about the book the minute I opened it was the wonderful tone of voice that you use. And it kind of felt like it was more a mate in the kitchen kind of telling me how to how to cook stuff rather, so than, rather than it being... Because often sometimes with cookbooks, I feel they're quite aspirational, aren't they? And they can sometimes I can feel like I've got no idea what the words they are that they are using or the ingredients. And it can, it can make me just go... Pfft. I'm just gonna make you know just cook a pizza <laughs> so i kind of like i think that is so key to what makes it really unique and interesting as a book as well as a cookbook you know it's kind of like an added bonus that it's got all these wonderful recipes in it because <laughs> the story is so lovely but i just wanted i wanted to know if how how you made sure that tone was right i think i've got a fairly consistent tone of voice speaking writing it's the same people who my friends who read the book been like this is how you sound all the time it's very clearly you i find it very hard to write in any other register really um but also i think it's to do with having taught myself to cook specifically the tone of voice for the cooking is having taught myself to cook by being like this seems nice i will google it and read 15 recipes and also sometimes having to kind of work out what people meant by things like i remember really vividly trying to learn to cook rice <laughs> which and there's so many ways mm. and it's like well cook it boil it till it's done what what do you mean by this i i have no concept <laughs> of what you mean and still quite often if i'm reading a recipe i can get really easily panicked and i do this for a living i've spent five years reading hundreds and hundreds of cookbooks i google i read recipes every day lots of them I still frequently get overwhelmed by a technical word. And so I was really keen with Midnight Chicken that it should be something that everyone mm. could read, that you needed no previous experience. But if you had previous experience, you could get something out of it as well. So I'm really pleased that comes across. Yeah, definitely. And one thing I really enjoyed was the just the really kind of little details of how, how you describe actually cooking the food. Like just kind of, you know, when you're talking about the... Um, the tools of the kitchen that you should have and just kind of like the, the small knife for opening little packets it's like the little details that kind of like of that really kind of bring up the like make you the sort of, they make you think about the process of cooking as well as the actual result which i really liked it just was like a nice little treat thank you i think that's probably because for me it's as much about the cooking as the finished result mm. and i find it very so my dad once when we were little had this cookbook and it was like a french cookbook and it was very fancy and the ingredients were kind of incorporated into the text and I remember once it was a Sunday so my dad used to cook on Sundays my dad would work in London all the week and he would like commandeer the kitchen on Sundays to do something incredibly elaborate and it was a Sunday and we were, none of us were allowed in the kitchen and I just remember his like coming in and just seeing his face and he had turned the page and found it was like you need now four quantities of this sauce which you will have made 24 hours in advance and like I wanted to make sure that it that the recipes felt achievable and they felt like friendly and i'm pleased that you say it was like having a mate in the kitchen because that's what i wanted to be it's just like just a nice steady hand like it's probably fine actually it's probably fine yeah and i, I like the sort of like um the inclusion of the things that you can do it, when, when things seem to be going wrong he's here is like a list of the suggestions that you can th- and I, I was like that's they're all so great <laughs> like just you know if, if things look like they're gonna go completely wrong this is the things you can try no cookbook normally includes that because the thing is, but the thing is, it goes wrong for everybody. Mm. <laughs> it really does. I have I have a very good, reliable source who has told me that one ex- who went to dinner with one extremely famous cook who managed to completely burn a roast chicken, and 
they were just shrugged it off. I think they got a takeaway. And I heard that story about five years ago, and I treasure it. That wouldn't have happened if they were following your midnight chicken recipe. Might have done. <laughs> Things go wrong all the time for everybody. Even you can have a recipe you've cooked. I mean, literally, midnight chicken. I did one on Sunday, and I shoved it in the fridge because for complicated reasons, I ended up not having it on that day. And I got it out of the fridge yesterday, and I was like, this chicken's raw. That's oh. that's what you've done there, Ella. You have <laughs> successfully roasted three quarters of a chicken. Goes wrong, even if you've made it. <laughs> you can just be paying slightly less attention, or the oven's a slightly different temperature, or like you put it in a different bit of the oven. Things go wrong for everybody, and I think everyone would have a happier time in the kitchen if we just acknowledge that the stakes are moderate. They're kind of high, but if you've got the disposable income to buy a cookbook, they're not that high. <laughs> the stakes are have some toast for dinner, have an egg, get a takeaway. It's not not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world. Yeah. <laughs> Stuff's going to go wrong because you're trying to make something and how yeah. can you make anything without stuff going wrong? Exactly. And if you have to have toast and marmite, it's not the end of the world. Um, so, as I mentioned before, this isn't just like another cookbook. There are some, you, put, you do put some very personal insights into your life. Um, and I, would, I wondered, you know, and it's, it's an exploration, you said about anxiety and how that's kind of helped you at some of the most difficult times of your, how cooking, the process yeah. of cooking. And I just wondered whether you mind talking a little bit about that decision to kind of include more personal details alongside the recipes. It was never really a decision. There was never a world where I was going to write a cookbook that wasn't also a book about mental health. Partly this is because I'm a compulsive oversharer and possibly a little bit self-obsessed. Maybe all first books. They say all first books are autobiographies, I guess, so maybe that was always going to happen. But there was never a world where cooking for me was separate from anxiety. It's not like I was a keen cook who was struck down by a terrible mental illness. No, I was a person with an anxiety disorder who found cooking to be a really helpful way out of that. And so they're always intertwined in my mind. There was no kind of pulling them apart. And also there was no point writing a... I think if you're going to write a cookbook in 2019... So I didn't write it in 2019, but... If you're going to write a cookbook at this point in time, when it's possible to Google everything you could ever want to cook, you have to sort of make your case for that. Mm. You have to make a book that can stand up on its own, and there are lots of brilliant cookbooks that do that because... They've got a radical new approach to cooking, like Nikki Segnet, who wrote The Flavour of the Thesaurus, and Lateral Cooking, her new one. Those are both books that, for me, do something really exciting and original with the whole idea of a cookbook. But I could not do that. I could not write The Flavour of the Thesaurus because it is just so profoundly knowledgeable. <laughs> and I'm not really, I'm not saying anything especially radical about cooking or about food or about eating. And I. I think I just wanted to tell a story about how food can and cooking can kind of improve your life and change your life and give you something to focus on. And you, so you've spoken about the redemptive kind of power of cooking, and it's clear that writing kind of plays a similar role for you potentially. And I just wondered if you would mind talking kind of about what writing means for you and the role it's kind of played. I don't mind talking about it at all, except that I don't think for me they occupy similar places. Writing, God, it's so hard to talk about writing without sounding awful, isn't it? Um, <laughs> Writing for me isn't really like a choice. It's not like an activity that I choose to do. It's a thing that I have always done and I would do it if there were nothing else left in the world. I would do it if no one were going to see it. I would do it without publishing. The act of writing is so divorced from publishing or from anyone seeing it. It's why it's publications been very surreal for me because I'm quite a, quite a private writer in a lot of ways, which is probably quite surprising for someone who's written a very personal column for years and has now written this cookbook that kind of doubles as a memoir. 
but I would say 70% of what I write doesn't get seen by anybody. Yeah, probably 70% of what I write doesn't get seen by anybody, 20% gets seen by the person I was writing it for, and then the last 10% is what gets published. Wow. So you do a lot of writing then? (laughs) I do. I do. I write pretty much nearly constantly. Yeah? So you've never had any problem with, um, with writer's block? Oh my God, I've just had it. It was horrible. <laughs> so I've been increasingly mean for years about writer's block as a concept. And I have just like lost count of the number of people I've said to. Writing's hard. Writing's frequently hard. It's just like, you just have to get on with it. You just have to put your back into it. Decide that today's just going to be a day where you just like, we joke that it's like moving bricks. Like you just move the bricks from in your head to onto the screen. And even if it's boring and repetitive, there's something to edit at the end. And then around publication week, I became completely paralysed. It was awful. I couldn't do anything. I think that's quite normal around publication week. I think it is. Everyone tells me it's normal. It's gone now, thank goodness. But honestly, I just need... I'm going to use this opportunity to make a formal apology to everyone I've ever... Everyone who's ever heard me be horrible about writer's blog. <laughs> I refuse to admit it. I, I refuse to accept it as a concept because I think if you let yourself be like, oh, I'm, people will be like, oh, have you got writer's block? I'm like, no. I'm just not in a good place with my writing at the that's moment. probably more <laughs> helpful. But it was really frightening to not have any facility to like, work out a sentence. I think I was just very tired and I think it was quite a big shock to me when, obviously this book has had an amazing reception, one I never really expected, but, and like that's brilliant and, and wonderful and you can't really hope for anything more as a writer than like, the people you really respect will read, read your book and get what you were trying to do. But it was quite overwhelming mm-hmm. as a person for whom most of my writing is quite private. And I think I just needed time to recalibrate my brain. Yeah, and that's also allowed to take a little bit of a break and, and you know, not to have to keep on allowing on. Like, you can take a bit of time to just stop Yeah, writing. I think, honestly, that is the one, like, if someone's like, what is a tip for writers? Like, you need other hobbies. Mm. Especially if, if it's your job, you need other hobbies. So I, in summer, I have my small balcony and I like gardening. Obviously, there's cooking. I've just taken up dressmaking, which I am so bad i'm very bad at all of these hobbies i'm good at cooking now but i wasn't for ages it's important to have a hobby that you're bad at i think and something creative without like being intellect necessarily intellectual yeah it works a different part of your brain doesn't it like I, and you can almost feel like a different i i, I mean it's i'm still doing something i'm learning spanish at the moment but i can i can literally feel a different part of my brain moving i'm learning hindi yeah. <laughs> and it's so important. Yeah. Doing other things, doing as many other things as you can. And doing those other things, I'm sure, is kind of when things you'll work out ideas. Like it's like people that run to kind of come to conclusions about I their have plot to walk and stuff every like day. That. If I don't walk, I can't write, really. I mean, I can, but I can't write anything worthwhile. It's a nice combo. Yeah. You have to get a dictaphone and then you can be like Alan Partridge, walking <laughs> through the fields, talking about your... Um, <laughs> Or not. Um, speaking of the reception, I read um, a quote calling you the new Nigella. And then I read a quote from Nigella. And, and I, like, I mean, I don't classify myself as a cook. I love cooking. But if I, was to, if I was to know that Nigella had read my book and potentially cooked one of my recipes, I think I would lose my mind. <laughs> yeah, I think I yeah, did. I, <laughs> I, she's been incredibly kind to me. She reached out just after Christmas. Oh my Actually, goodness. No, a bit before. She asked me on Twitter to send a proof way back when we were doing that, so last autumn. And then she just reached out after Christmas to tell me that she'd read it. And I was so overwhelmed that I couldn't actually talk about it. So we just, my parents live in France and they had the whole family there. Like, we have a 
big, big family. I had lots of sisters. We had tons of people there for Christmas. And everyone was waiting for dinner. And I literally just had to go and lock myself on the balcony. It's just like, I am taking my drink and I'm going. And it was minus three. And I was just standing there silently on the balcony being like, can't talk about this. I don't know what to say. This is too much. Obviously, this is a dream. And now I will die. <laughs> oh, you just soaked it in on the balcony. Now you thought, like, this, is, this has happened. It must have been quite the moment. I wish it had been, but like everything, so many wonderful things have happened around the publication of this book, and I don't really think I have absorbed any of them yet. Talk to me in a year, and I'll probably be pleased. Are you writing a lot about the kind of journey of being published? No. No? I'm writing a lot about everything else, but haven't actually written at all about the journey of being published, I think because I just don't know how to process it. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it'll come. I'm sure it'll come. So, I think... Um, it would be good to note, like, you know, with the kind of standard pitching process of a of a book, you know, so it, we, yeah, how, obviously this was kind of five years, five years in the making, you said, and so I just wondered whether, um, yeah, if you could explain how you pitched the book and what you pitch for a cookbook. This and... is a truly, like, awful story, because it's not relatable. I started this blog, three blogs, and then I thought, it'd be really good if this was a book. So I tweeted, does anyone want to be my agent? <laughs> and some agents got in touch. And I arranged meetings with a number of them. Unfortunately, my first one was with Daisy, who is my agent now, at Legends and Rubenstein. And I loved her. And the bookshop, their agency has run out of a bookshop. And I basically signed on the spot. We should probably say that you have you, you had quite a following on Twitter. It wasn't like you were just a complete unknown at that point. You kind of you know you've been writing think columns so. and no I hadn't, uh, I hadn't. Had, so you really just had three, three blogs like that's that's ridiculous. <laughs> well, the thing is, I've been sort of blogging little little blogs since I was twelve, most of which now, please God, are lost to infinity. I mean, no one needs to read the things that I thought were beautiful poetry when I was fourteen. <laughs> I remember one about a pheasant. I kind of want to. I kind of want to hear some. That's no? the next question, actually. <laughs> next question. Um. And I'd kind of been around on Twitter for a long time since I was at school, and I'd met lots of friends on Twitter, but I really saw it's a very sociable place. Very social place. It was Twitter was very different then. It was all anonymous, and it was all chatty, and I'd met my partner through Twitter, I'd met all of my friends through Twitter, I'd moved countries twice to live with people off Twitter. So, oh, wow. You know, I was really a big fan of Twitter. Big fan of Twitter <laughs> back in the day. Found your agent. Yeah, I did. I, my whole life. It's crazy to me now. And then did you work on the pitch with her? I did. Okay. We both had a very clear idea of what we saw this book being, which is exactly as it is, which I think really helped. I think it was really useful that I had a clear idea, Daisy had a clear idea, and the reason we came to Bloomsbury was we saw like a number of other publishers, but Natalie, who's my editor at Bloomsbury, also had the exact same very clear idea. So it's like the three of us were extremely united on our vision for this book. Right, brilliant. Which is, I think, why we have had such a joyful time publishing it. I've never published a book before, but I am told by my editor, by my agent, by everyone who's ever worked on books before that we have had like an unusually fun time on this book. That's good. good I think we've all agreed. Sorry. Biggest disagreement was about the shade of blue for the cover. <laughs> I wanted it to be very dour. <laughs> Very drab, very dark, and I was outvoted, and I'm so glad I was outvoted. And yeah, 
think it's a gorgeous cover and all of the illustrations are beautiful really beautiful yeah elisa cunningham who's my illustrator is so clever and did you have to have the whole book written before you came to bloomsbury or did no. you so you just had sold kind of, it on so, proposal. You, so so on a proposal and kind of a couple of sample chapters because I'm sure a lot of people have the dream of wanting to do something something similar. I sold it on a sample and I so, so there was a cover letter. I think I did twelve sample recipes and I drew a huge map, which I don't know if you ever read Girl Talk or Ms or any of those, but like when you have. Like a question is like yes or no, and you like go down the flow flowchart. Yeah, flowchart. Yeah, like with the arrows. So I made a huge flowchart. I drew it um, on like A two paper, and we scanned it in, so it all got very small. And then we sent that as the like front cover of the proposal, and that was kind of just basically my what I kind of promised with the flowchart was like every specific feeling a person could have, I would take you to a recipe, and. Although that idea. I really want to see that picture. I've got it somewhere. (laughs) Amazing. Although it didn't end up in the final book, it really informed the way we all thought about the book. Well, it's it's a good way way of summarising the vibe. Summarising the whole vibe. It's like fun and informal and relatable and lots of drawings. So I drew this flowchart, lots of pictures. Kind of very relaxed, but also kind of very aware that things are hard. Like I remember one of the questions in the flowchart is like, can you go outside? And... It was really important to me to kind of maintain that sensibility through the book of being like, people have different needs at different times. People have different abilities and different capacities at different times. One of the things that was really important to me, it came up in the illustration stage, was we were talking about, there's quite a lot of squash in the book for some reason. I cook with it a lot. It's a very useful, it's very hearty, delicious. Hearty, food. delicious, useful, useful meat substitute. You can do a lot with it. Anyway, so we were talking about illustrations and we we're sitting there and like my illustrator done this lovely sketch of like a big beautiful butternut squash and we're kind of sitting on the table and someone just said but Ella always says buy it pre-chopped because it's a pain to chop it's a pain and like (laughs) some people have bad wrists it's like it's not an easy vegetable to handle and so it was a real like it guided the whole thing of this of the whole book really was guided by this principle of accessibility and being for everyone and We've got so far off topic. I'm so sorry. We were on <laughs> how did I sell a proposal? Um, sold it on proposal. Yeah, with that drawing. With a big drawing and sample recipes. Wonderful. Are those recipes that you included in that in the pitch? Are they all in the book? Most of them. Okay. I think two or three dropped out. Just better recipes came along. Yeah, you know, it was a. By the time I finished it, I was you know four and a half years better at cooking. <laughs> um. So, you're when you're not creating cookbooks, you work as a freelance writer. I do. Um, And I wonder if you could possibly share some tips for other freelance writers out there who are kind of looking for a way to possibly translate their freelance work into a book. It's a really interesting question for me because I have a million tips for freelance writing because it's my favourite thing in the world. I cannot believe how jammy I am to have this job and this life. (laughs) Um, But whether I have any tips about kind of parlaying that into a book, I don't really know because I saw this book when I was at university. Mm. And so I've always been a freelance writer with a book. Oh, how wonderful that you came out of university and got a book straight away. I sold the book in my second year, at the beginning of my second year of university. But I was already writing lots of things. And and was it was it easier then to get the columns that you've had and the pieces that you've had based around that kind of the fact that you have this I book think it's all kind of come together. Mm-hmm. I think having, I think kind of obviously quite a high online profile and, you know, I'm not going to dwell on this, but it's important is that my partner had cancer and 
died last year, but we became jointly very high profile because we did a lot of fundraising and we did a lot of awareness raising, which is kind of one where the columns came from, which is not a course of action I recommend to anyone. Like, it's not a surefire way to kickstart a career. Um, but it's obviously part of the story of how I kind of ended up with these columns and this degree of online presence, which led in turn to kind of more writing because then you can become known. So it kind of all feeds off each other. Mm. And it helped, obviously, that I was friends with a lot of people who were writers and were not kind of going anywhere. And we were just kind of writing our own blogs and trying. And then, like, for example, my best friend, Caroline O'Donoghue, who you've had yeah. on the podcast before, when we met, she was my boyfriend's intern for basically no money, writing weird things about films and <laughs> writing for her blog, Work in Prowess, yeah. and Best of Film, which was the where she was the intern, rest in peace. And <laughs> I was writing just weird, weird pieces, mostly for myself, but like sometimes just telling like really long stories on like involved like short stories on Twitter. And we we're all doing weird slightly experimental funny things and we kind of bounced off each other like all of us and we worked and we read each other's work and we critiqued each other's work a lot and that's something Caroline and I still do like we go for a walk almost every morning and we go and walk her dog and we bounce ideas off each other and we're like I'm stuck with this piece of plot I don't know what to do with this that's so great well it's probably my other thing I would I can't imagine being freelance without knowing other freelance writers Mm must be very lonely probably the most important thing for me is to have this routine where I see other people and I have people I talk about work with mm. would that be your main tip for freelance writers like yeah. to, have, to have some so many people to talk to about about the process my main tip is routine absolutely like not set in stone but pretty close so what's your routine I'm glad you asked <laughs> So I get up about 7.30. I need about 45 minutes without anyone talking to me because I tend to just get up, wake up and get straight out of bed and I just need to be blundering around in the sitting room just gripping a cup of tea, like, not speaking. So get up at 7.30. Like, between 7.30 and 9, I kind of do some emails, make a to-do list, have a cup of tea. About 9 o'clock, my housemate gets up. We have, like, half an hour of having tea then she makes some toast i make the tea she makes the toast so we've got it down to a fine art she does the food interesting she <laughs> does breakfast okay i do dinner every day oh wow I nice she's got all, a sweet deal <laughs> i do all the food shopping and all of the cooking but i have never done any washing up i hate washing up and are you one of them <laughs> i do the cooking so i don't have to do the washing up i am yeah if <laughs> i do some, deal. if i do something really elaborate which she has not in any way asked for, I do do a bit of washing up if I've used, like, every pan in the house. And also if I cook, like, Vietnamese food, because she's not a huge fan of Vietnamese food, I am, and it feels unfair to make her wash up something that she would never have chosen. (laughs) Whereas I would always choose Vietnamese food. Me too, actually. Anyway, back to the routine. Back to the routine. (laughs) Sorry, so easily distracted. This is why I need the routine, because I am so easily distracted. Breakfast little shower get dressed and then I go for my walk with Caroline meet her at her house which is about 25 minutes away walk the dog around the, take the dog to Greenwich Park 
probably like I would say like a third of the walk is mainly like gossip straight up scurrilous gossip talking about everyone we know and everything we've heard and then another two thirds <laughs> is work it's who are you pitching what are you pitching what did this editor say where are you at with your book and kind of also more loosely than that kind of bigger hard to speak about it that's any awful but kind of bigger ideas and bigger themes that are kind of coming up again and again what we kind of might want to be working towards what things we might be doing in the future what things we have done that we kind of want to take further like it's work chat your colleagues it must be so wonderful um how lovely to be to be colleagues but also friends but also friends that are enjoying success with their first books at the same time that's so lovely it's really nice yeah. it's i were you each other's first readers or did you read each other's stuff i yeah i think so i i like i say i'm very private about my work mostly my first reader tends to be my agent then my editor because i'm very secretive about it and i love Caroline always reads basically any journalism I do, I send to her first. But like when it comes to like tiny private writing of the soul, I'm always like, okay, well I have to show it to my agent, I have to show it to my editor. They're, they have to see it. But no, we, we are mostly each other's first readers for things. That's so nice. So so you go for this chat and you discuss all your ideas and your, all your pitches. All the things, all the pitches. Usually by the time we've done like, you know, half the park in general bitching and half the park of work chat then we're back drop the dog off get laptops go to the cafe work together we have to sit at separate tables (laughs) (laughs) have to sit at separate tables in the cafe because of the risk of talking because as you have no doubt already picked up i find it very hard to stay on topic (laughs) um and then that's lunchtime, home. And then I tend to do like something a bit different. I tend to do like, I tend to do sort of once I get back from the walk, do like a solid chunk of writing. Then I like to do some, have lunch and do something a bit different. So I'm currently working on this poetry anthology, for instance. So I might do some admin for that, or I might like print out the work. I'm print out the poem. I'm not sort of annotating and working on putting into the anthology print that off get a highlighter be like this is what i need to draw out from this poem this is what why it's important Mm -hmm. something that i have to basically get the felt tips out get the highlighters out get the post-its out something where i'm not looking at a screen then i go back and do a bit more writing by that time it's like 4 30 and then i start thinking about dinner (laughs) do you ever write after dinner i try really hard not to 4.30 4.30 I start thinking about dinner and I'm supposed to work and I work until about 6 and 6 I start cooking and we have dinner at 8 I try really hard not to work after dinner I can write and I can I can write things if they're not paid work <laughs> I, have to, I have to have these rules or I would find myself working till really late like when I was finishing this book I remember sending a draft to my agent quarter to 12 and she literally just replied with, this is too late. <laughs> and I, right. <laughs> I, live under a very t- I live under a very tight government between my agent and my housemate. I really I have to go to bed on time now and everything. 
And um, do you think so? So you're, you're working on a poetry anthology. I am. How exciting! And when can we expect that? October. October. Okay. And it's called. It's called Set Me on Fire. Set Me on Fire. Okay. I did. I was about to ask about that because I saw that, that from Doubleday. Yeah. Yeah. Set Me okay. on Fire is coming out from Doubleday in October. How exciting! It's going to be brilliant. I'm. Just, I can't wait. Okay. So, uh, so a cookbook, a poetry anthology. Do you think there's a novel in your future? A cookbook and mem- slash memoir. Novel potential. There might be. Um, I've always written fiction, as I say, mostly for myself and for my friends. Um, I don't think I'm good enough at novels for that to be a thing that I would want to publish yet. I, so when I was little, you know, you always read about people who are like, the novel, the first novel I published was actually the seventh novel I wrote. And I remember thinking when I was a kid, like, that's pathetic. Get your first one out there. Why, (laughs) why waste? If you've already written a novel, why are you going to keep working? And now I find myself a person who is always working on a novel. <laughs> I have been since I was about 15. Sometimes I finish them, sometimes I don't. But I see them at the moment for me, kind of, I'm just learning. Mm. I, feel, I feel I have a lot to learn about fiction writing that I don't quite, I don't quite have yet. And I love that. I love, I mean, I think I have a lot to learn. I hope I always have a lot to learn about writing generally. But particularly fiction, because so there's so much wonderful fiction out there, mm-hmm. and I read more fiction than anything else. I need to keep practicing. Mm. Need to always keep working. It's a whole different beast to um, to writing memoir, and because my first book's a memoir, and I'm trying to write fiction now. And um, my God, you know, like it's I, I'm studying fiction because it's not necessarily like my natural area, and it's just like so how how so much is said without actually saying it it's just such a it's such a yeah it's a I think because I always thought I'd be a novelist that was always my career plan not not one of the world's great sensible career plans but it was always <laughs> my career plan you know being a cookbook writer really came completely by surprise editing poetry poetry anthology is like my longest my long term was my long term dream I remember being three or four and wanting to write to be the person so I had like it's called like my very first poetry book I don't know most people seem to have had it It had a cartoon chicken on the front (laughs) I don't think I remember that you will have had it at some point because everybody (laughs) did um and being like that's what I want my job to be but cookbook writing really crept up on me I never intended to write a cookbook it just happened but I think probably because I have this thing about writing a novel where I'm like that's that's the dream job that's the proper one I find it quite intimidating and I think the only way to kind of get over being intimidated by it is to keep doing it until I'm like, okay, that sentence can stand. I could bear for someone else to see this. Writing a novel for two years in like instalments for my friend. And Wonderful. Yeah, it just sort of happened. Again, just sort of happened. Started writing an email. Email got out of hand. 82,000 words later, here we are. Oh my goodness. Have you put them together? Would you put them together to see whether they're not always yeah, cohesive? I have- yeah, I um, this could be it. This could be this time next year. We no. could be discussing that. No. <laughs> well, but um, it's good practice. It's what I mean is I I think maybe if, you, if like, you've asked me my tip for sort of freelancers, which is routine, but my tip for writing is in a kind of social media world, so much of what we write is instantly public and it's so easy for everything you write to be instantly on a blog or if you're a freelance writer, the impulse to make someone pay you for your time is really present and it's really pressing and... I am as susceptible to it as anybody. But I think my real improvement on my real kind of practice as a writer comes from that practice. It comes from 
I am writing this because I have to. I want to get better. I'm going to do that. Then the only way to get better is to keep doing it. It's like that ten thousand hours thing, and I think yeah. it can be very easy to think. Well, I can I can improve in public. I can improve for money, but I find it's much easier to push yourself and stretch yourself if you're doing it for yourself or for like a couple of people you really trust. Which is, I guess, why people are in like writing groups, yeah, and that sort of thing. I'm lucky that I have friends who I trust to read read the bits of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So I think that's a great, an absolutely great tip. Just if you know, if you want to write, you need to write. <laughs> you need to write and not necessarily show anyone. Yeah. Don't because, be in a rush. Yeah, don't be in a rush to show people. You've got plenty of time. You do? Yeah. And I can't wait to see whatever comes next and I can't wait to check out the anthology. And um, good luck. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Have you heard about the Riff Raff Mentoring Scheme? This is a new service with Launch which pairs those currently working on books with published contemporary authors within your specific genre so that you can get expert advice and feedback on your work in progress. To read more, learn how to get involved, and to check out our incredible lineup of author, mentors, slash coaches, head over to the-riffraff.com or come say hey on Twitter at riffraff underscore LDN.